You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's Rico Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. Russian troops invaded Ukraine last week in a shocking display of force not seen in Europe since World War II. Good morning from the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Gunfire and explosions have been heard here and in the second city of Kharkiv. The Russian military launched more than 100 ballistic and cruise missiles into Ukraine last night. Overnight in the capital of Ukraine, the sound of missile strikes and air sirens. But Russia didn't just attack with tanks, bombs and troops on the ground. This war is playing out in cyberspace as well. In fact, Russia has been mounting increasingly serious cyber attacks against Ukraine for years. Kim Zetter is a cybersecurity journalist and author of Countdown to Zero Day. She joins us now to discuss what Russian hackers have been up to in Ukraine and what may be to come. Hi, Kim. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine has taken Russia's aggression to the next level, but in terms of cyber warfare... Russia has been attacking Ukraine for a while now, right? Yes. We don't call it cyber warfare, though. Um, I'm very reluctant to ever use that term, except when it's actually accompanying conventional warfare. Yes, Russia has been attacking Ukrainian systems for a long time in varying degrees. It sort of comes in waves, and we've seen, you know, sort of significant actions in 2014 around the time of the Ukrainian election and the invasion of the Crimean Peninsula. We saw another spike with the NotPetya attack in 2017. It quickly spread, paralyzing major companies and causing more than $10 billion in damage. 2015 and 2016, some of the most significant events against Ukraine involved taking down the power grid in a part of western Ukraine. The hackers sent emails with infected attachments to power company employees, stealing their login credentials and then taking control of the grid systems to cut the circuit breakers at nearly 60 substations. And I wonder why Ukraine specifically? I mean, we know more now about Putin's ambition to keep Ukraine from joining NATO or developing more powerful weapons. But why has Russia used Ukraine for what, I guess, kind of seems like cyber target practice? Why not the U.S. or another foe? Well, the U.S. is uh, obviously greater strength than Ukraine. Russia has great knowledge of Ukraine's networks, of its systems. It knows its weaknesses. Um, they're not going to attack the U.S. because they know in, in retaliation that that's just not going to cut it. You know, other than espionage, they're not going to be attacking networks. Um, we did see them try to interfere in U.S. election in 2016. So there have been some forays into that. Really, Ukraine is sort of an easy testing ground for them. And my understanding is that Russia has also ratcheted up its cyber attacks against Ukraine in preparation for the invasion that's now unfolding. Uh, What's been happening in recent weeks? 
Well, what's been happening in recent weeks, from what we know, it's fairly minor. Again, but we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what's happening inside those networks that we don't yet see. But the first uh, events that we were seeing outwardly were some defacements of government websites and some banking sites, and that was in January. Um, and they all happen simultaneously. But defacing a website is very minor in terms of a kind of a cyber attack. It's mostly to embarrass and to be uh, obvious to the public. Uh, then we've seen some denial-of-service attacks, which are designed to actually take down the websites or prevent people from accessing them. Again, those are sort of low-level kind of operations. They can be a cover for more significant activity behind them, but we haven't seen that yet. And then really the more significant right now that we're dealing with is some wiper attacks where they use uh, malicious software to wipe the significant system files um, that essentially render the computers inoperable and unrecoverable. We're recording this on Thursday, the morning after the initial invasion. Since that has happened, has there been an increase in cyber attacks or any indication that there will be? And I guess at what point do we reach your definition of cyber warfare? Uh, it's unclear um, what more is going to happen. Obviously, the you know the most effective attacks are always going to be kinetic, uh, physical attacks through air, sea, ground. But there's no doubt in anyone's mind that Russia is inside Ukraine networks, whether or not they focus only on military and government networks to spy on communications or to block communications is unclear. They have the potential to do more disruption, for instance, against the electric grid potentially, but we really don't know at this point. But do you think we should expect more attacks on infrastructure specifically? I think we should always expect and prepare. I mean, Russia has already, they have a track record of focusing on critical infrastructure in Ukraine. So it would be unwise to think that that isn't in their repertoire for what they have planned for Ukraine. But we don't see signs of it yet. But that doesn't mean it's, all, it's not already in play. And what makes cyber attacks on infrastructure so dangerous? I feel like a lot of people think of Cyber attacks is something that just happens on computer networks, but as we've seen in Ukraine in the past, that's hardly the case. Yes, a cyber attack has the potential to jump from the digital realm to the physical realm. Um, I wrote a book on Stuxnet, which was an attack launched by the U.S. and Israel against systems in Iran. And in that case, the malware didn't just infect systems, it destroyed equipment that was being controlled by computers. And we've seen also in the case of Ukraine in 2015 and 2016, where Russia didn't just take down the grid, they actually overwrote devices that are responsible for providing electricity. Essentially, they ruined those devices, um, and those devices had to be replaced manually. It's possible to do something more than just wiping data or preventing services. Obviously, in the middle of winter, taking out the electric grid is concerning. It's easy to take down the electric grid, though, and very hard to keep it down. Electric grids tend to be very resilient um, and have mitigating factors. And unless you actually destroy the equipment physically or through digital code, those kinds of outages are, tend to be temporary. But again, you know, Russia is coming at Ukraine with full-scale invasion involving kinetic activity with bombs and potentially cyber. And so you have the potential to actually uh, take out critical infrastructure for a lengthy period of time. 
And on another front, there's disinformation. I'm, I'm not sure if we should call that a cyber attack, but it's certainly dangerous. How does disinformation fit into this invasion? And are, are there increasing concerns there? Well, I mean, there have always been concerns about disinformation from Russia. It's obviously it's grown, and we see a lot of it in the U.S. now, beginning with the 2016 election and going forward. I think that many people have become educated to this now, and certainly Ukrainians are used to it. For instance, there were um, some reports of Ukrainian soldiers getting text messages to their phones, telling them that it's hopeless to defend their country and they should give up their weapons and surrender. You know, Ukrainians are used to this kind of activity from Russia, and I don't think that that has much of an effect. There were also text messages sent to bank customers when the DDoS uh, you know, uh, campaigns were launched against banks. Some customers received a text message saying that the banks had been taken out of service or the ATMs were out of service and customers would not be able to get money. And my understanding from what I've seen from people in Ukraine said that basically they dismissed these messages. They knew they weren't right. It was easy also to dispute them because all you had to do was go to the ATM and see that the ATMs were still running. So there's concern, obviously, about disinformation. I think also disinformation about a pretext for invading Ukraine, that was a concern in the run-up to this invasion. But U.S. intelligence did a really good job of exposing that and preparing both Ukraine and the public for what Russia might have been planning. And that really uh, ruined the element of surprise for Russia. And um, ultimately, they didn't use a pretext campaign like that. Well, speaking of the United States, we heard not long after the invasion that President Biden was considering mounting cyber attacks against Russia uh, as a uh, an alternative to putting boots on the ground, perhaps. Uh, what, what could the U.S. or Ukraine do? What, what cyber attacks could they launch against Russia and, and how would that pan out? So if they are in, and presumably they are in uh, Russian communication systems, in the same way that Russia can intercept communication in Ukraine or block communication among government officials and military in Ukraine, the U.S. can potentially do that in Russia, depending on what kind of access they have. But that's the kind of thing that the U.S. would focus on, is sort of assisting Ukraine in some kind of cyber offensive operations that disrupt the military activities. How well prepared are the Ukrainian people against any cyber attacks that might be coming their way? Uh, well, you have to make a distinction between the government and the regular citizens. Um, obviously, the government and the people who defend government networks and civilian networks, you know, have been on a warning for years. You know, they since 2014, they've had a lot of assistance from the West. Uh, there are U.S. companies and U.S. government elements that have assisted Ukraine since then uh, consistently and have people based there permanently uh, to assist. But as we see, you know, there are there are still issues. I mean, the fact that government uh, websites were able to be taken down through a DDoS campaign um, indicates that they haven't done enough preparation. And that is worrisome uh, regarding more serious backend systems. Um, I don't think that you can necessarily draw a direct line between those two and say that if a website is not secure, that that means those backend classified systems are not secure. Because the attention would have been focused primarily on those backend classified systems to secure them. So the websites can be, you know, sort of a hole that fell through the cracks. And if the backend systems are secure, then that's really what matters. 
Right now in Ukraine, there are civilian actors. We used to call these hacktivists, but they actually work closely with governments who help defend Ukrainian systems and also helped launch offensive uh, cyber attacks against Russian systems or to disable and disrupt. And so you can imagine that if Ukraine is toppled, if the Ukrainian government is toppled and Russian forces come in, there are a lot of people in Ukraine who have you know, extensive inside knowledge of Ukrainian networks, and they will make it very difficult for the Russians who take over those systems. I want to point out that we've actually seen a sample of this already in Belarus. There's a, a group that's called the Cyber Partisans. They say that they are IT people, network people. Um, they've worked in conjunction with uh, Belarusian police in exile to identify the most important systems that they could target. And they've gone after hacking uh, police, judicial systems, things like that, and done leaking of a lot of documents. So that's the kind of thing we would most likely see in Ukraine. We will see sort of a rise in that kind of resistance and going after parties that are oppressive in that new regime and trying to expose them. Well, of course, this is a fast-moving situation, but do we know what the impact Russia's cyber attacks or retaliation could have on global cybersecurity if there's a potential ripple effect? Well, what we saw with NotPetya in 2017, this was a worm. It was an attack disguised as ransomware that initially targeted systems in Ukraine through a software update and then rapidly spread around the world. So the interconnectivity of you know, global internet is is severe, is is extreme. And so if you have an attack on Ukrainian systems that spills over, you potentially have a really large scale global outage of some kind. Um, certainly ripple effects in supply chain potentially and uh, and other things. I have to wonder, and I'm I'm going back to that definition of, of cyber warfare. I wonder what all this means for the bigger debate around cyber attacks and whether or not we should consider them acts of war or rather when we should consider them acts of war. It's not really um, well-defined. You know, uh, 10 years after Stuxnet was launched, we really don't have a grasp on, um, you know, concretely categorizing uh, many of these operations. You know, cyber warfare, it should be, it should be considered cyber warfare um, under the rules of international engagement if it's an act of force or it's an act of war under international law. But of course, the experts are not in total agreement on what constitutes an act of force in cyberspace. But simply taking out someone's website is not cyber warfare, even if it's accompanied. It's another tactic, obviously. You know, we're really talking about going after critical infrastructure, going after communication systems and things like that within the context of a war or some kind of geopolitical situation. The first time that cyber warfare was used as a term, um, you know, sort of loosely by the public when there were a series of DDoS campaigns launched against Estonia. In that case, it was done not by government hackers, but by government-supported hackers, or at least they had the approval of the government. And they were launching it against government and banking uh, and e-commerce sites in Estonia to take them offline in retaliation for Estonia moving um, a statue. And people were calling that cyber warfare, and that really wasn't cyber warfare. 
So there are a lot of degrees of this kind of activity um, that have to be sort of carefully delineated. Otherwise, the term uh, starts to mean nothing. I have to ask one more time if if we are really concerned that we might see the most severe degree of cyber attack, and if that's something that folks you've spoken to have have worried about. Yes, people have been worrying about this for several months now. The U.S. government has been warning critical infrastructure owners. You know, in the U.S., largely it's owned by private sector, not by government. And so, yes, everyone has been concerned about the spillover and the potential for cyber warfare. I mean, legitimate, actual cyber warfare. So that is a concern in this case, and we may see uh, this kind of activity at a level we haven't seen before. Um, It all remains to be seen. It's all theoretical at this point, and we're just all waiting to see what happens. All right, Kim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by John Ahrens and engineered by Christian Ayala. I'm Adam Clark Estes. Thanks for listening.